If you define rules that are really strict, a lot of girls tend to not play loose and not play the game of basketball. So I like the girls to know their role in regards to their strengths, but also understanding that just because it's not a strength of yours doesn't mean you can't do it. Welcome to Holding Court, presented by the Ohio High School Basketball Coaches Association. Join hosts Adam Hall and Walt Serrato as they sit down with some of the biggest names in Ohio high school basketball and beyond. This show and all of our shows are available to listen to completely free anywhere that you can find podcasts. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Let's get to it. Hello, it's Adam Hall here with my co-host, Walt Serrato. And tonight we are excited to be joined by Tracy White, head girls basketball coach at Versailles High School and former head girls basketball coach at New Philadelphia High School. Tracy, thank you for coming on tonight. And welcome to the Holding Court Podcast. Thanks for having me. I'm excited. So Tracy, let's go back in time to when you were a kid. Tell us a little bit about some of your first experiences with the game of basketball. So I started playing basketball when I was really young. I attended my first basketball camp and it was at Worcester High School when I was a first grader under the direction of Coach Alberts and all of his kids because Coach Alberts actually coached my dad in high school. So I have been around the game my whole life. My dad is a huge basketball person. He actually coached junior high basketball when I was younger, so I was in the gym with him. So started playing young, and then fifth, sixth grade, started playing a little bit of AAU, um, but mainly just attending a lot of camps um, in the summers and playing our biddy ball program that we had at the school. We did a co-ed program, which was probably the best thing as a for a young kid that I could have done because, you know, playing against boys and against girls, you get all different different levels of competition. So I've been playing the game of basketball for a long time. So coach in high school, then move on a couple years later, you attend West Holmes High School and also Danville High School, a thousand point score, mm-hmm. graduate in 2009, also valedictorian of your class. Not a whole lot of people can say they're a thousand point score and valedictorian. <laughs> um, so how did those high school experiences shape your early years as a coach? You know, I really had a lot of different high school experiences. My freshman year, you know, being at West Holmes, I was on a pretty good team. We got beat in the district championship, but I played a completely different role. I was more of a defensive player, um, kind of the hustle type of player. And I had aspirations to be better. Um, I had a lot of girls on my team that were very good, looking up to them, you know, making the varsity team as a freshman. Then it was just my, I I set goals and wanted to get better every year. And then being at Danville, um, it was a little different. Out of the four years, I had three different co- three different head coaches throughout my high school career. And so going back to Danville, you know, a much smaller school, my team as a whole wasn't near as um, competitive as we were when I was at West Holmes. Um, I was fortunate because I was able to like lead the area in scoring my sophomore, junior, and senior year and things like that, but would have taken you know, success with my team over some of those things. But I went from playing kind of a defensive role and a supportive role as a freshman to being uh, more of a leader role and a scorer, um, which was my goal whenever I was going into the summer. But we spent countless hours, you know, in the gym working. I had a ball in my hand all the time. We had a, a barn where we set up a basket and just kind of made goals and worked towards those goals each year. So coach, I want to follow up a little bit on that. 
You mentioned that um, when you were growing up that you played a little bit of AAU when you were in fifth and sixth grade, but mostly did the camp circuit, worked on skills. Talk to us how you feel as though the game has changed since you grew up and even when you were in high school. And I'd like for you to speak to us a little bit about that AAU scene then versus now, along with player development. Yeah, you know, it's. I'd like to say it hasn't been a long time since I've played in high school, but it has. And so, you know, AAU is just a little different. There wasn't a lot of kids from every school that had the opportunity to play AAU. Um, it wasn't near as big of a monster, whatever you want to call it, as it is these days. But when I was younger, we would attend different camps. You know, I would attend camps at our own school, and then I would attend three, four, sometimes even five camps at other schools. And we just really worked on skill stuff. And I think I think a little bit of that has been lost in today's game, just because I think skills are so important. And, you know, we, we want to play and we want to go, go and play in games. And AAU is about playing in those games. But I think we also lose a sense of, you know, developing those skills and understanding that, yes, we, you know, you love to win, you want to work as a team, you always want to win, but you also have to develop what causes that. And so, you know, when you're building those skills, I can't tell you how many times I just went into a gym and worked on ball handling and went into a gym and, you know, I might only shoot 10 shots, but I was in a gym for two hours working on other things. But AAU, you know, now there's a lot more girls from every team that plays. There's a lot more teams. They play, and depending on what program you play for, they play a lot of tournaments. Some teams, you know, they're more more about their team winning versus developing the individual players. Some aren't. Some still, you know, work on those skills and still get to know the players. But I've had several players that play on AAU teams where their coaches, you know, never reach out to see kind of what role they're going to be playing in our program and what they need to work on in order to develop our program as well as them individually. So I think that sometimes just gets lost. And there's kind of a fine line between skill development and playing in a game. I think both are important, but you play in a lot of games in your high school career. And so if you're able to develop those skills as well as play different roles in your AAU team, you know, I feel like a lot of people benefit from that. And it's just, it's changed a lot. Yeah, that how it's changed and maybe why it's changed is probably a whole nother topic for maybe another day. <laughs> yes, another I would podcast. agree with that. <laughs> I'm sure we all have our opinions on that. Yes. Um, but let's transition back to you and your playing days. So graduate from Danville, uh, mm-hmm. go from there to Notre Dame College, replay for two years. For transferring um, to our alma mater. I'm sorry to my fellow uh, Malone graduate on the pod here. Um, went Go to Walsh, and, and while you're there, you had the opportunity to play for Coach Laurel Waltluff, who a few years prior to you getting there uh, led the team to the NAIA Final Four. What did you take from your collegiate playing days that you carried on with you to your early coaching years? Yeah, I was very fortunate in both my college at Notre Dame and then again at Walsh. Um, so my coach at Notre Dame was Dick Deasy, and he had been there for several years, um, had a ton of success. Honestly, arguably one of the top coaches that I've probably ever played for. Still talk to him to this day. Like He was almost just like a father-grandfather figure for all of us, but you know he meant business. He did a lot of skill work, and you don't see that a lot in the college game just because of the level of play that people are coming in with. So we played a completely different style when I was at Notre Dame. And then unfortunately he retired, but which 
is why I transferred to Walsh and then transferring to Walsh, being able to play under Laurel, who, you know, a completely different style of coach than what he was definitely more intense. You know, she had her success, like you said, before I got there going to the national championship with the NAIA, it was, you know, more of a hard nose type of a coach to play under more of a my way or the highway type of coach. But I learned a lot of things from each of those coaches. And I think the biggest thing that, well, one of the biggest things that helps me as a coach is, you know, I I had to work to get to where I was at. I wasn't, you know, I had to get build my skills. I was not, you know, born the best, most athletic person. And so each of my coaches that I had, I took different pointers from. And, you know, I still call Coach Deasy and I'll just, you know, if I have a question about coaching or a question about something that's going on, I'll be like, what would you do in this situation? So I really think that those years helped in this career of coaching immensely, you know, just seeing the different styles and being able to take the pros and cons from that as a player and then being able to switch over into that role as a coach. But I also, um, when I was playing in college, I decided to start coaching AAU in the summers. I actually coached my first AAU season between the summer of my senior year in high school and my freshman year of college. And it was probably the best decision that I had made because I was seeing the game from a completely different perspective. So coach, you graduate uh, Walsh University, um, mm-hmm. tremendous college career, thousand point scorer between Notre Dame and Walsh. You get the opportunity after graduating to spend one year at Walsh as the graduate assistant before being named a varsity assistant on coach Matt Ball's staff at New Philadelphia. As both a graduate assistant at Walsh and a varsity assistant at New Philadelphia, what types of responsibilities were you given? And as you look back and reflect on that time in your career, how valuable were those two experiences in preparing you for the role of CEO of a basketball program? I would say um, probably more valuable than I could even imagine. Um, When I was, I knew that I wanted to coach, but I knew that stepping right into a head coaching role would be something that would be very difficult. And, you know, there's a lot of things that go along within school systems now, especially nowadays, just, you know, some politics things, some last name things. And being a young coach is sometimes hard to step into, you know, that role and gain respect and have people look at you the same way they would look at a veteran coach. And so when I was the grad assistant at Walsh, I was more, you know, the backgrounds type of person, skill development, watching some um, like recruit videos that we had got, going recruiting, doing a lot of things like that, which I don't necessarily use as much now that I'm coaching in the in the high school world, but it definitely put a different perspective on me as if I ever wanted to be a college coach. Um, and, you know, having a young family and knowing that I wanted to start a family, I knew that from that year, that probably wasn't the area that I wanted to pursue at that time. But following that, I had got a few calls for coaching opportunities and actually interviewed at Berlin Highland at New Philadelphia. Two of those were, and I had just finished um, and got my college degree and my um, double major finished. So, I went and interviewed at both positions, you know, offered both positions to be the assistant coach. And New Philadelphia at the time was just the right fit for me to go play under Coach Bull, who I had the opportunity of playing under and was, you know, was the best experience as a player. And then when I became his assistant, my role was much greater. I I ran pretty much the whole defensive end of our of, you know, practices and games and things like that and kind of called the shots for that. But obviously running it through him. And then he did the offensive and 
I could go on and on about all the good things that Coach Vol's done for me as a player, as an assistant coach under him, still to this day giving me advice. But we kind of just worked hand in hand, and I was able to be, you know, as the head coach, you're more of the hard nose. You know, you don't really get to have the positive stuff as you know the as many of the positive interactions as you might like. But as the assistant coach, you get that role. So, you know, I was the, the one that. Once they, the girls might get yelled at or something like, okay, did you understand what the message was? Like maybe not how it was given, but what was the message behind it? What we're, what are we trying to learn? You know? And so I got that aspect of it. And I think that actually helps me as a head coach, just because I don't fill that role as much as a head coach to be like the positive one. But then I also catch myself like, Hey, okay. You know, you've been negative. Maybe it's time to relax a little bit, you know? Um, check yourself and just make sure that the girls are understanding what's being told to them versus how it's being told. So yeah, you kind of alluded to our next question here there, um, tra- you know, transitioning into being a head coach and, and you were an assistant for two years and then spring of 2016, you're named the head girls coach at, at New Philadelphia. Um, th- those two years, you were there for two years, compiled a record of 46 and eight, not too bad for your first two years in a program. A lot of postseason success. Uh, that first year you led the Lady Quakers to a regional final and the second year making it down to the final four. Talk about that first season, like you said, you know, changing from an assistant coach to the head coach. And looking back on that time, is there anything you would have done differently that first year? It was kind of a whirlwind, a little bit unexpected. I knew that Coach Bull had an interest in pursuing and going back to the boys' side of things. And, you know, he had told me several times when we had talked that he felt like I was ready to fill that role. And it was definitely a, a big change and a big jump. But I'm fortunate that, you know, him and I together had built a strong, you know, youth program and a strong background that I was able to come in um, his last year as a head coach. We, did, we didn't go as far in the tournament. You know, it was just kind of we were 500 that year. And so... We were, I really felt like not that things needed changed at all, but we just needed to to grow and we needed to grow quickly, you know, if we wanted to have the success with the girls that we had, because our senior class that was coming up was a very dedicated class that worked their butts off. You know, they might not have been from day one, the most, you know, basketball skilled, but they were determined to get there. And, you know, they definitely got there with our success that we had with you know, the run after that and being able to be playing in the regional. If there's one thing that I would probably now looking back and I've had these experiences coaches, I don't think I put the girls in enough game like situations throughout practices and things just because, you know, how our season ended Our some of our girls didn't even understand the call, you know, and so that is that has been a point of emphasis for me is explaining game situations and letting them making sure they know those little rules that some people don't even know are in the rule book. But, you know, going back, I just feel like another thing that I try to emphasize now is putting the girls in uncomfortable situations in practice. You know, obviously it's not the easiest thing to do as a coach. Sometimes it's an awkward conversation or it's an awkward play or something like that, but making them feel out of their comfort zone so that when it gets in a situation like we had and like we'll talk about that it's you know it's it's second nature and they've they've been there they've done that um but when when you're playing and you're in the stage like in the regional game and something goes awry you know it's kind of hard just to keep your composure play your game and stay stay the course so i definitely learned a lot from that first year 
Well, Coach, let's get right into that postseason run then during your first year. Uh, talk to us uh, about the run uh, that you made to the regional finals. Um, and, and I want you to spend a little bit of time on that regional final game. Talk to us about what happened at the end of the game because being from Tuscaroras County in the Dover, New Philadelphia area, I know it's something to this day that is still brought up and discussed by many in our area. Yeah, our tournament run was definitely special that year. Um, you know, when you make it to the regional or state, you have to have luck on your side for things, you know, no injuries and everything was going just as planned. We're going into the regional game and we had battled back. We were down two and there was 16 seconds left to go. We had just scored. Now we're down two. We're full court pressing. They run a girl out of bounds to get us to cross the line and potentially get a violation. So, you know, looking back, if you touch the ball, technical foul, touch the player, intentional foul, get just go over the line, delay of game. Luckily, our senior, she didn't touch the girl. She didn't touch the ball. She just had went over the line. She chased her out of bounds because she was full denial. Honestly, probably our hardest working, um, best defensive player on the team that year. So she's, you know, going wherever this girl goes. And I had never even thought to talk, talk to them about you know, when they have they're able to run the baseline that they can run out of bounds and make that pass. And so they run out of bounds. She follows her. She steps over the line. There was the baseline official makes the call and he um, calls it as a delay of game. And pretty soon the sideline official, she comes running over to the baseline official and they talk for a little bit. And then all of a sudden she motions that we have a technical foul. And most coaches, I feel like for the most part, I can kind of keep a calm temperament and I don't really like to get on the officials because I think they're human anyway. And they're, I ask them questions, but I don't like to yell at them. So it was kind of weird that this all happened. But she had made a, the technical foul and she walked by our bench. And as she walked by our bench, I just said, can you please explain what the call is? And she kept going. So I'm just assuming she's going to the scores table to report the technical foul. And then she's going to come back and explain you know, exactly what they're making the call about. She reports the technical foul, and then she goes to the other side of the half court. Now, I did. I was out of my coach's box. <laughs> um, I did, you know, step forward towards half court a little bit, and I, I just said, can you please explain what the call is so that I can explain it to my player? Like, I'm not even sure how I'm supposed to tell her what she did wrong. And she turned to me, and she said, coach, get back in your coach's box. Okay. I was out of my coach's box, so... I went back and got into the coach's box and I said, okay, can you please just now explain it? I still would like to know, you know, she's a senior. I would just like to tell her what she did wrong, you know, all this. And actually, it's funny because I did say please twice. So I wasn't really even demanding. <laughs> but um, she turned at that moment once I asked her to come back and explain it, she turned and gave me a technical foul. So now we have two technical fouls. There's we were down two, now we're down five, and they get the ball, and there's 16 seconds left to go. At that point, what do you do, right? So there was several, several coaches that were at that game. A lot of them that reached out that just, you know, asked, how did I not get ejected when everything was going on? And to me, you know, what's done is done. You know, she made the call. The girls need to see me acting just as calm as what we would expect them to ask to act and you can't control it. So I just didn't say anything. They, they got the ball. We played defense, 16 seconds ran out, game over. It was very unfortunate. It was very hard as a first year head coach 
to end your season as you getting a technical foul. So, you know, that weighed on me for a while. And I replayed the video back quite a few times. And I don't think I'll ever forget, you know, the moment of all of that. But it was definitely a learning moment. The girls, you know, I felt bad for our three seniors. The day after the third official that hadn't got involved with it at all had called and, you know, apologized to our AD and, you know, said that he should have stepped up and said stuff and things like that. And we we did, you know, send send it to the OHSAA and letting them know that, you know, the, the worst part was they had the score book or the rule book at the table, the scores table. And, you know, they weren't, she wouldn't even like, I mean, she wouldn't tell us what the technical was even for. So to get the rule book out and see it, you know, so still to this day, I don't really know what the technical was, you know, because it, we didn't have a delay of game warning in the book. So if we would have had a delay of game warning, I would have understood that technical, but it's a mystery. <laughs> well, I mean, coach, you nailed it. You know, like, like you said, uh, officials, they're human beings too. They make mm-hmm. mistakes, but you always just, for the sake of the kids, you, you want to see, you, always, you hate to see a game decided by the officials and not by the players. That's that's the second time for that story. You went in great detail this time. <laughs> and I was still at the edge of my seat like it's the first time I've ever heard it. So sure, it's not something you love uh, rehashing and recapping. But um, let's let's talk about kind of the fallout from that moment where now you're going into your first offseason after that run and the unfortunate ending. Uh, what did that offseason look like? You know, sometimes having success can lead to complacency. Did you see that with your group coming back or did you see a a hunger and determination in them knowing, Hey, we can make even farther. We need to make be in Columbus next year. Luckily um, we did not have that complacency feeling. Now we did overemphasize. um, I like me, my coaching staff and I, we talked several times about we have to model what it's going to be like. So if we get complacent, they're going to get complacent because I feel like it's just as easy as for a coaching staff to get complacent as it is for the players too. So, you know, we started right away talking about how it ended before our summer and, you know, setting goals and things like that. I honestly could tell you that I don't believe any of the girls coming back thought that they would be playing in a state tournament. You know, it just had never happened in New Philly. I could say it, you know, you could speak it till you're blue in the face, but until they truly believe it and um, we worked, you know, our skill work was probably double what it was the previous summer that year, just because I felt like we really needed to take our skills to the next level. You know, our girls had played together. We had a lot of girls coming back and I felt like the way that we were going to get farther was to develop those skills to work on the communication side of it, to develop our leaders on the team and do things that you don't necessarily see, you know, when you're playing in a game. So we did a lot of skill work that summer. We still, you know, team camps, shootouts, things like that. We still went there, challenged the girls a lot, and they responded to all of the challenges. We just, like I said, I was very fortunate because we didn't have to really talk a lot about it because they were so hungry and they were so mad about how it had ended that it kind of took took care of itself. You know, our attendance was, I don't really know, but I'm getting, you know, our attendance for our girls being in the gym, it wasn't asking them, you know, are you coming today? It was showing up and there's already four or five girls there. I remember the one morning we had morning workouts and we had to go really early because we didn't have a gym available. And me thinking I was getting there early, you know, I was getting there 20 minutes before. I always told the girls, you know, be there 15 minutes before, ready to go. And 
they were all inside the lobby, just sitting in the lobby floor waiting for Coach Payne to get there. Um, so, and I, you know, that was a moment that we talked as a coaching staff, like, we got it. Like, these girls got it. They're, they're bought in. They're the one, I mean, they're showing up to a 6 a.m. practice before we're, we get there at 540, you know? So I would have to say we're very, we were very fortunate that they just, they were bought in and they were excited and ready to get better. So coach, you take that momentum that you had in the off season and you roll into your second season, your team went 25 and three, uh, advancing to the final four in Columbus. Your opponent in the final four uh, was none other than Toledo Rogers, which happened to have a, a pretty good player on their team by the name of Zaya Cook. Uh, Zaya went on to play for Don Staley at South Carolina and was just recently selected 10th overall in the WNBA draft by the Los Angeles Sparks. Your team put up a heck of a fight, uh, only losing by five points. Um, kind of describe that week leading up to the state semifinal game. You know, how did you keep your kids and coaching staff focused? Because I'm sure there were a lot of distractions that week. And then talk to us about how you prepared for Rodgers and what types of things you did to try to slow down Zaya Cook. Yeah, um, that week was really just kind of a crazy week. You know, there was so everybody in the community did so many things for our girls and the team that you had meals and everything that was leading up. So I just we talked to the girls before the week and I we just said, you know, give us an hour and a half, an hour and 15 minutes, whatever the scheduled practice is. Let's really focus. You know, we we set just a few things that we needed to get done each day. We knew that Toledo Rogers was different than any team we had played. So the preparation was going to be different. But at the same time, I, I truly believe that over preparation can also kill a team. So we didn't want to overload them. We didn't, I, you know, I think confidence and them believing that they could do it was a big thing. So we did the minimum we could do at just letting them know this is their personnel. This is what we want to do for each of their people. You know, we did we did spend a, more time on um, how we were going to defend Zaya Cook. Um, the week a week and a half before we played them, she was on ESPN, so it was kind of a incentive in our locker room. You know, like okay, you're going to go play Zaya Cook. What can we you know can we shut her down? And so we talked about you know Josie Pry was a phenomenal defender. Um, she could anybody you put her on, she would just make them so mad. So we knew that Josie was going to be the one to defend her, but we also knew it wasn't going to be by herself. So we had, you know, we had a plan with Zaya that Josie would defend her. And then anytime she got away, the closest person would run to her. We would always have a second defender there. So almost like two people are defending her, but not, not two people defending her, if that makes sense. But, you know, Aaliyah um, got in foul trouble early in the first half and debated going back and forth when to put her in when to put her in and you know I had set a goal or a point differential in my head if we got to that point we were going to go with her and we didn't so it didn't go with her so that we could have her in that second half and actually it worked I mean we were down two we just could not get over the hump but I really think the biggest thing that we did that week that was probably better than anything was we just wrote out our goals of what we wanted to do as ourselves versus what do we want to do with Toledo Rogers and trying to get the girls to understand you don't have to play any different. Like you play your game just because it's a different style. You know, you're going to see some different things happen, but you know, if you box them out, they're still going to go over your back. If you, you know, things like that. And there's pictures of like Rachel Anderson jumping and out rebounding their girl that was six, six. So it, it was cool. And I think a lot of it, 
is just a confidence thing. Like they have to know that they can, that you believe that they can, they can beat the team. And if somebody believes in them, then they can have the ability to believe in themselves as well. So coach, you have an outstanding two-year run at New Philadelphia. You make the tough decision to resign as the head girls basketball coach. What led to that decision and how did you eventually land on Coach Stonebreaker's staff at Versailles? Well, that was probably the hardest decision that, one of the hardest decisions that I made probably in my entire life. You know, we had just had a phenomenal year and uh, Meg Maurer and Anna, um, was our, they were our only two seniors. And so Meg, Meg was our only one that actually played in the state tournament game and in our run. We were just losing one player that was going, although Anna was a phenomenal leader, but playing time-wise, you know, one player and everybody else was back. So I had gotten engaged and we were going to get married in July. So my fiance at the time, he worked for Honda at Honda Corporate. And so there's not a lot of Honda places besides down here in (laughs) Southern Ohio. So I had a couple options. And my first option was to resign from the position and move down here once I got married in July. And my second option was to get married in July and live three hours away from my husband. To be honest with you, it might sound crazy, but we (laughs) truly debated (laughs) both options. Um, (laughs) But in the end, just didn't feel like it was doable to, you know, start a marriage, start you know, our family being three hours apart and just couldn't make it work and make it seem like it would be right to stay for a coaching position. Although, you know, whenever, whenever it happened and I did have to resign, I, it was, it took a, it took a toll on me. I had, I told, you know, a lot of people, I just don't think that I want to coach for a couple of years. Like, I just think I need to step away from it. You know, this is something that I don't take lightly. I had, so much respect for everyone at New Philadelphia, the parents, the players, they were all so understanding and they made it a lot easier. But then moving after I got married, moving down to the Versailles area, and I actually got a job at the local career center, still not thinking I was going to be involved in basketball. You know, I was just thinking I was going to have all this free time and, you know, live the married life. And then I got called by Jackie, who had been, she's been the head coach with tons of success at Versailles, a phenomenal coach. And We talked a little bit and, you know, she was like, well, why don't you just come to team camp and see what you think? And we all know that if I'm there and I see it, (laughs) you know, I have a love for the game. And so I talked to my husband and then ended up volunteering for her team that first year that I was down here. All right, coach. So you go from not wanting to coach (laughs) to now being a volunteer coach to the following year being named the head coach at Versailles High School all while being newly married and having plans to start a family. Talk about that roller coaster a little bit and what it means to you now to be the head coach at Versailles, a program that has such uh, a rich basketball tradition. You know, um, they always say it's not your plan. It's God's plan. (laughs) And so as much as I thought I had it figured out that I was just going to get married and relax and do all of that, it changed. And then, like you said, volunteered for a year. It went really well. I enjoyed being on that staff, learned a lot from um, Jackie Stonebreaker. And then, you know, being able to join into the Versailles area, like you said, a very rich basketball tradition, had a lot of success prior to the years that I came in. But the summer after the first year that I volunteered, Jackie had given me a call and she was just like, um, so 
I think I'm going to take the principal's job. And I was like, oh, okay. And so then I instantly, you know, talked to my husband, started figuring out what was best, if it was best to take the job, to apply, to not. And it's just, it's such a passion for me that, you know, my husband was all on board. He's like, just interview for it. You need to, you know, go do it. It'll be fine. So like you said, a full turn. And then I was having a baby, getting a head coaching job. Life changed. We ended up, you know, as soon as I had my first, my son, we built a house that was five miles, five minutes from Versailles High School. So I didn't have as long as a commute, but I was still working at the CTC. So I was working at the Career Center. But yeah. And so then here we go back in, back in the head coaching position and ready to go. Yeah. Life, life has a way of taking over sometimes. It um, does. Yes, and, it does. You know, and it did for sure. Yeah. Like you said, plans we may have, ideas we may have. Sometimes uh, there, there are bigger things in motion going on. So yes. let's talk a little bit about your experience you've had here at Versailles. Um, you've had a little bit of everything in your four years. Uh, year one, you guys won 18 games. You make a trip to the regionals. Year two and three, a little more rocky. You guys mm-hmm. go 13 and 34. Yep. So then this past season, you guys go 17 and 11, kind of make a surprise postseason run. Lost in the regional finals to an always difficult team to play, uh, Columbus Afrocentric. How tough were those middle years, years two and three for you? And as you look back on it, how did that help you grow as a coach? You know, going through them, they were really tough. And I was constantly self-evaluating. Like, what am I doing as a coach that's not getting these girls, you know, where we need to be? Why are we, where's the success? You know, I got to keep pushing and things. So kind of did things a little bit different and pulled back um, from the previous year to do tons of fundamentals, tons of skill work, changed a little bit of what I I had thought, you know, my philo- my coaching philosophy needed to be. Um, but with the group of girls that we had, and it just wasn't possible to have success in the style that we were attempting to play. So changed that a little bit. But I would say that after going through them, I probably learned more in those two years and just listen to podcasts and research some different things about coaching and reached out to several different coaches. And I learned a lot in those two years that I think, you know, grew me as a coach, probably more so than the year we made it to state when we lost three games. You know, there was more experimenting. There was more learning the game outside of, like I said, what I thought my coaching philosophy needed to be. I think that we all have our coaching philosophies, but I think they also mend and shape around the girls that we have on our team and in our program. And being a young coach, you know, all I had experience and all I had ever had was my coaching philosophy. Get after it on defense, run the floor, be able to work off of each other. And so we needed to be just a little more structured. We needed to be able to slow the game down in times. And so I think it was more kind of like a humbling experience for me, like swallow your pride, realize that you're, you know, the group of girls that you have, it just needs to be a little different. And so those two years, you know, the girls still came to practice and worked hard. We still accomplished a lot and we still made improvements. You know, our record may not show it. And we, you know, play in one of the toughest conferences across the state. And so you don't ever have, you know, when you have a like a down year or whatever you want to call it, you know, you don't have those games that are just games that are winnable games or games that you can you can get better at. I mean, everybody's pounding you down every game. I mean, when you go to Minster and you go to 
Fort Laramie and you go to all of these schools, you know, they all are completely dominant teams and they don't care if you have, you know, if you're having a year where you're just working on getting better. And so I kind of used our practices as, you know, that's where we had to get the confidence. We had to be able to, as a coaching staff, instill confidence throughout our practices where, you know, a lot of times you're able to instill confidence through your games because, you know, you have that success. But when you don't win as many games, you know, we had to we had to find ways to do that with our girls throughout practice. But I will say, you know, there was a lot of bumps along the road and then, you know, just some things that we worked through. But I, it definitely helped me as a coach. Tracy, now we'd like to transition to a segment that we call Triple Threat, where we are going to give you three topics and let you share your thoughts, ideas, experiences, and or suggestions with our listeners. Number one, the importance of role clarity. Um, so I have a little bit of mixed feel, mixed thoughts on this. Um, I think it is important for girls to understand their roles. And I think that to an extent that roles need to be defined. But I also think that at least in the in the philosophy that we do within our program is if you define roles that are really strict, a lot of girls tend to not play loose and not play the game of basketball. So I like the girls to know their role in regards to their strengths, but also understanding that just because it's not a strength of yours doesn't mean you can't do it. You know, if you're not a three-point shooter, but, you know, I don't know, you shoot here and there, you know, you can knock them down, but you're just not consistent. Rather than saying to our players, you know, you're not going to shoot until you make this many. You're not going to shoot until you do this with a shooting workout. Instead, it's just more like, okay, let's see it in practice. Do it when we're scrimmaging. Just don't do things in a game that you wouldn't do in practice. And I don't, you know, I think it's important that they understand what they bring to the team and they understand what, you know, their role might be, especially if it's a different role than what they might think their role should be. But I just, I, I think there's a fine line between, you know, getting that hesitancy if they're thinking that they're only a three-point shooter or they're thinking they're only a defensive player. I had a player that was an extremely tough defender. She, I mean, she worked her butt off. She would get steals all the time. Offensively, you know, skill-wise, probably not our toughest, not our um, toughest player. When we, she came into the high school level, her shot was probably, I mean, the worst, worst shot that I have ever seen. And she knows it because we took one summer and we changed every aspect that you could imagine with her, with your, her shot. And I kind of use her as an example because, you know, had I locked her down into a role that she's a defensive player, we wouldn't have won four games that we had this year with her as a senior because she hit the three baskets in three of the games that put us up in order to get us going again and get us the run. And had she not been there and had I told her, you know, your role is not to shoot, <laughs> she wouldn't have taken those shots. You know what I mean? So it's just one of those things that I just believe a little bit different than a lot that I've talked to. I do think that it's really important, but I also think that them understanding that they can do other things than just what maybe their strengths and their role might be lets them play, just relax and play and have fun with the game of basketball. Okay, so number two in our triple threat, stats that matter the most. Okay, so when it comes to like basketball stats, um, ones that we emphasize probably the most are offensive rebounds and assists and then deflections getting deflections and getting hands on the ball. So 
to me, offensive rebounds, your percentage goes up every single time you get an offensive rebound. You get a second chance shot, you get a third chance shot. I had an assistant coach for the one year that uh, introduced me to offensive rebounding lanes. I had never heard of them in all the years that I had coached, and I now swear by them. Um, It takes a lot of energy and effort to get girls to buy in and to go to those spots, but when they do, it's almost an automatic offensive board when whenever you can get to those spots. So I think that one's huge. I think assists are huge because all that we hear about and see are scoring. And we, you know, when you're talking about high school girls, what is it? What does everybody say? Oh, you had 20 points last night. Oh, you had this many points last night. No one says, hey, you had 12 assists last night. So we try to emphasize, you know, when you have 12 assists, you had at least 24 points and just kind of give them that look. And then the one I said was deflection. So um, defensively, we really like to get up in the face of our um, opponents and just get in the passing lanes. And, you know, I think that was one thing that we played a little bit different style when we played Afrocentric, but um, getting deflections on the guard so that they weren't able to get it into the post was a bit, was an essential thing for us. You know, if you can get deflections and you can change that direction of the pass, they now can't get it inside in order to dominate or in order to make their post move. You know, we can't just rely on the post to have to do that. The guards need to get those deflections too. Um, so those are probably our my top three basketball stats. We also emphasize we count high fives a lot. So we emphasize as a not really a basketball game, but like a high five or an acknowledgement to your teammate, just pointing at them like, hey, nice pass. We do that with our productivity chart that we use so that we can kind of see, you know, if girls have questions you know, what am I doing wrong or what am I, why am I not getting something or getting the playing time that I want? Or why am I not getting into this play or what is going on with certain things? We can go to that productivity chart and it breaks it down kind of for them. And we've just made it for our own beliefs in the stats and stuff. So every coach could put their own stats in there, but I just think it's important for the girls to to be into it and to give high fives and to acknowledge when someone gives them a good pass. And, you know, on the flip side, being able to pick up a teammate when they're just having an off day. Um, I think the mental game goes a lot, goes, goes a long way, especially when we're talking with high school girls. Coach, our last question for you in our triple threat package is having efficient and productive practices. You know, I think it's really important and I think it's hard as well. It's such a long season. So, you know, do you keep the girls for three hours? Do you go for an hour and a half? Do you go for two hours? What's the best answer? I don't really know. But what we've we've kind of locked into is what do we need to accomplish? So, you know, you have three or four goals or maybe even just two, two goals that you need to accomplish that day. We always try to cover each of the main areas. So we have an offensive session of our practice, a defensive session of our practice, and then we'll fill in the rest with you know, shooting, rebounding, fundamentals. We start every practice with just fundamental drills. So they all, they all have a pre-practice routine. They come in, you know, five, 10 minutes before practice starts, go through their pre-practice routine, and then we can cut down practice because they get some of those fundamentals in our pre-practice versus having to include them in our practice. But I think one thing that, uh, we've really tried to emphasize lately is in practice, putting girls in, you know, bad situations, putting them in uncomfortable situations. We had, I had a player that just mentality, we weren't sure, you know, is she ready to move up, not ready to move up those types of things. And so put her in, uh, in the varsity practice, ran a play that I knew she did not know. I knew she had not gone over it with our varsity team, but wanted to see how she reacted to that, how, 
you know, she handled it. Did she handle it maturely? Did she panic? Did she keep playing? Did she keep playing? Did she not? And the re- reaction and response told us the coaching staff right away to whether she was ready or not. Um, so I think just doing little things like that, being able to, like I told you earlier, um, game situations, making sure they understand things like the running the baseline and delay of game and technical foul and all of that. So I think the biggest thing is making sure you touch on the, the most important aspects for your team and that making up the biggest bulk of your practice and then filling in some of those smaller details. Coach, we have one more question for you, but before we get to that, thank you for coming on the show tonight and spending some time with us on the Holding Court Podcast. You're welcome. It's been enjoyable. So, Coach, having had the opportunity to watch you at New Philadelphia and then follow you these past four years of Perseus, uh, I know how much the game of basketball uh, means to you. It's it's just not – coaching isn't just something you do. It's It's who you are. It's a passion of yours. I also know how much your family means to you. Um, when we spoke prior to this podcast, uh, you brought up your husband, Jason, and your two children, Jagger and Josephine, quite often. It has to be a tough balancing act for you when it comes to your family, your teaching job, and your coaching job. How have you managed to find that healthy balance between everything? You know, this year was probably one of the hardest, just having such a young daughter. Um, her being born just right before season was very challenging. But first and foremost, I always just tell my husband, if it's too much, you just got to say, you know, it's not something that can affect our family, affect in a negative way. Um, I'm very fortunate because he's a basketball person and he's from Versailles and he gets into it just as much as I do. And he's all about it because he sees how, how passionate I am. But I had the opportunity of my son, you know, he's now four, just turned four at the end of March. But at the middle of season, he decided that he was going to be a ball boy and come to more of the practices and, you know, be on the bench and do all of these things. And at first I was nervous about it. He did really well. And it just kind of helped my, you know, mom heart because you're gone so much. And I think sometimes we don't realize how much we are gone until there's, there's things like that that happen. But he's kind of, he's taken a liking to it and he wants to be in the gym. And, you know, Josephine, she, she's a baby, but she just was a gym rat. She went scouting with me several times this year. Family means a lot to me. So if it's something that's going to affect my family, then I'm not going to be involved in it. And that's, you know, even if it's something that I feel passionate about and there's going to be another way that I'll get involved in it, that wouldn't take up so much time. But I did have, you know, when we lost Afrocentric in the Elite Eight, the locker room was emotional, you know, everybody, not a dry eye, everybody's saying their stuff. And Jagger just grabbed my shirt and he said, mom, come here. And I leaned down to him and he said, I'm really sorry, but I'm kind of glad it's over. You're going to be home now. And, you know, at first it like broke my heart, like, oh my goodness, he, you know, he really hasn't seen me in forever. But then a week passed and he came over and said, mom, I was just kidding. When are we going to go to basketball? (laughs) So, you know, it's just kind of became a part of our family. And I think it's important, you know, to keep a good, good, healthy balance as well as you can. And sometimes it's hard, you know, especially with with teaching on top of it. But we manage and it works out. Thanks for listening to Holding Court, presented by the Ohio High School Basketball Coaches Association. Make sure you subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. In the meantime, keep up with us on Twitter and Facebook at OhioBKCoaches, on Instagram at OHSBCA1947, and online 
at www.oh.nhsbca.org. Until next time.